Thanks, Wesley and team. Would you thank them uh, with me this morning for the worship today? Thank you so much. Great to be with you here today. My name is Chad. I serve as one of the pastors here uh, at LifePoint. We're continuing our series in the book of Revelation we're calling New, and we'll be in Revelation chapter 5 today. We've been talking about how Revelation really isn't about a future calendar, but it's about present hope. It's more about present hope than a future uh, calendar. When I was in college, I went to a small Christian college in Arkansas. Uh, Some say it's kind of in the middle of a bean field, so there wasn't a lot to do uh, at our college. So we uh, went to a lot of sporting events. Um, I got a picture of me and a couple of buddies who were at one of our sporting events. Before we went there, we dressed up and painted our faces. Uh, So I wanted you to see that this morning. You could see the level of commitment that I had uh, to, you could see the intensity, right? See the intensity. It just, uh, it meant a lot. So there was not a lot lot to do in the middle of a bean field. So we went to a lot of sporting events. And one of the uh, games we went to uh, quite frequently was our women's basketball team. And they were playing one day and this point guard from the other team uh, was bringing the ball up uh, to, to half court. And I, I grew up playing basketball, so I knew the rules, uh, was very in the know. And she started bringing the ball up to half court. And I noticed that every time she would bring the ball up to half court, she would take more than 10 seconds to get the ball across half court. And if you're familiar with the rules of basketball, you have 10 seconds to inbound the ball and get it across half court. If you don't, it's a 10-second violation. And the referee just wasn't picking up on this. So she would in, they would inbound the ball, and she would take, I don't know, easily 12 to 15 seconds, she took her sweet time to get across the half court line. And so there I am with my painted face yelling at the referee, 10 seconds, 10 seconds. I mean, over and over, over again. I'm, I'm, I'm there yelling at the referee about this 10 second violation. And I probably did it. I'm not even kidding you. <laughs> no less than 10 times yelling at this referee. And, uh, and so during one of the timeouts uh, uh, that happened in the, in the game, the referee jogs over and he's coming toward me. And I'm like, all right, he wants to talk about this 10 second violation and admit all the mistakes he's made. And he comes over to me and he says, hey, pal, there's no 10 second violation in women's college basketball. <laughs> and then he just jogs back over. Like he was super gracious to me. I mean, I was a jerk to him. I was a jerk to him. And he just real calmly says, there's no 10-second violation. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Um, I, I didn't know the rules uh, to women's basketball as well as I thought I did. I kind of ignored this 10-second violation uh, rule. And when you ignore things like that, this is what happens. And if I'm honest with you, I had the same kind of mentality with the book of Revelation. I, I had largely ignored the book of Revelation. I, I'm admitting that to you as that's not a great thing. That's not a good thing. Uh, because we should never ignore any part of Scripture, right? It's all valuable. It's all inspired by God. We, we should give uh, a lot of time and attention to studying it, knowing it. But I just had kind of uh, had the approach that, look, Jesus wins, and that's all I need to know, okay? Um, but I've kind of come to see uh, that I was wrong about that, uh, that I was wrong not to give attention to, to the book of Revelation. I was wrong not to study it. And what's interesting is there's a book by uh, Scott McKnight that I recommend to you that really helped me called Revelation for the Rest of Us. And in that book, McKnight really showed me that uh, the opposite's quite true. Revelation might be the most important book of the Bible for our life and times. It, It might be the most important book of the Bible for our life and times. So as we look at Revelation chapter five today, I want us to see a couple of things. I want us to see primarily 
that Jesus is worthy, but in a couple of ways. Jesus is worthy because of who he is, and Jesus is worthy because of what he's done. All right, so the first one is Jesus is worthy because of who he is. Look at Revelation chapter 5, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. So this is the opening scene of Revelation chapter 5. And it, it kind of presents us with this dilemma. And I, what I'm about to say um, is maybe a big leap for you, but I think this is the greatest dilemma in human history. Revelation chapter 5. The, the greatest dilemma in human history. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Look, there's been a, a myriad of dilemmas that our world has faced in just the last hundred years much less all of human history. And you're saying this is the greatest dilemma in human history. That's what I'm saying. I think it's the greatest dilemma in human history. Because here we are at the end of, uh, the end of human history, and this scroll needs to be opened, and no one is found to open it. Now, this, this scroll brings up uh, a good point that maybe a little side note here. Uh, about the book of Revelation. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of um, hyperbole. And so we have to realize that when we come to the book of Re Revelation, we're not the original audience. Right? I think that's helpful for us in understanding it. It was written to first century Jews who were suffering under the Roman Empire and under persecution. And so they're the primary audience. It doesn't mean we can't understand it and can't apply it. We certainly can. But we need to realize that it's, it's not written to us primarily. It was apocalyptic literature, so it's kind of coded uh, and written in a way that, that, uh, that, that the, the powers that be couldn't directly read it and understand what was going on. So we have to read the, the Bible and specifically Revelation, not literally, but we need to read it literarily. It's really important. So when it comes to imagery, we, we've got to do our homework. We've got to look at it and see what, what, what it's saying to us as people who are outside the original audience. I mean, imagine if a first century Jew were to be suddenly transported into our time and culture. Imagine how lost they would be in, say, this conversation. Yeah, I know. He slid into my DMs. I mean, how lit is that? But I'm also feeling a little salty about it. And you know I'm pretty much the goat when it comes to being salty. I mean, honestly, I'm lost in that conversation. I don't know how a first century Jew would take that, right? And so I think for us, sometimes we think, why is it so easy then for us just to go the other way 2,000 years and plop ourselves into the first century and go, I know everything that's going on here. It's like, no, we don't. So we've got to do a little bit of care. We've got to do a little bit of work. We've, we've got to make sure that the images that we're, we're seeing in the book of Revelation uh, line up with the message of the book. This is where a lot of people get get a little bit uh, get a little bit off. This is why I kind of was uh, in the relationship I was with the Book of Revelation, where I was like, I don't know about that because I'd only seen TV preachers with questionable haircuts talking about the sixth horse of the apocalypse being their least favorite Middle Eastern country and the Antichrist, their least favorite Middle Eastern 
leader and uh, trying to tell me about um, a master class on blood moons. Like that was the experience that I had with the book of Revelation. And I think you can kind of get off track pretty easy with that. So we've got we've to read the Bible, especially Revelation, not literally, but read it literarily. It's apocalyptic literature. So when we think about this scroll, um, what does it mean then? Well, I'm going to try to do my best to explain it to you. The next several chapters reveal uh, this scroll and the seven seals. They're opened, and we see the justice of God coming into the world. So I think the scroll is representative of the justice of God, that God is bringing his justice into the world. The number seven represents wholeness or completion or fullness. It's kind of that way throughout all the Bible. Uh, God created the earth in six days and rested on the, what, the seventh. So there's wholeness, completion. So when John is writing here, I think he's writing to show us that this is the wholeness, the completion. We see that the scroll is written on on the outside and on the inside. So the fullness of God's justice and the fullness of God's plan is in this scroll. And so as it gets opened, we see it coming into the world. So I think this is important for John because he's writing to these marginalized Christians to say that God is going to bring justice in the world. You don't have to worry. God is going to bring things and set things right. But the problem is we're in the greatest dilemma in human history. No one can open the scroll. No one can open the scroll. And look at the the depth of this dilemma. Verse 7 says that no one in heaven is found to open the scroll. No one on earth is found to open the scroll. And no one under the earth is found to open the scroll. No one, literally, literally no one is found to open the scroll. So think about this. If, If Revelation is a vision of John of the future, of what's coming to bring present hope to Christians then if it's, a, if it's a vision of the future, then God has at his disposal every human that's ever lived in human history. And yet no one is found worthy to open the scroll. Let, let that just sit for a minute. Think about every government, every king, every regime, every person who's ever lived and no one is found worthy to open the scroll. I mean, Mother Teresa is not worthy to open the scroll. The Dalai Lama, not worthy. Muhammad, not worthy. All of the popes, not worthy. Jim Harbaugh, not worthy to open the scroll. Not worthy. No one is found who is worthy to open the scroll. And I don't know, all of human history. If you you could just feel, I don't know if we can feel that for a minute. No one is worthy. You can fill in the blank with with any name you want. No one is worthy. Now, why is this such a big deal? You're like, okay, no one can open the scroll. What's the big deal? Why do we need the scroll opened? Well, again, if it represents the justice of God and no one is found worthy to open it, then everyone who has ever suffered injustice in all of human history is just going to be without justice. The Christians that are suffering under Rome at this time are just going to be without justice, not to mention that God can't move forward with bringing the wiping away of tears that we're going to see at the end of Revelation, the the hope of restoration that all things are going to be made new. That can't happen unless the scroll is open. 
That's why it's such a big deal. I mean, we would literally be stuck in the hopelessness of this moment forever. But this isn't the end of the story. You already probably know that. Look at verse 5 in Revelation. It says, Revelation 5, 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. John is weeping at the dilemma here. And and, and the elder says, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So finally, some good news. There is one who is worthy, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is worthy because of who he is. There's some um, Old Testament imagery, imagery here with describing Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah and describing him as the, the root of David. Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the 12 sons uh, of Jacob. And so when he says he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, it means that, hey, this has been God's plan for a long, long time to bring about the salvation of the world through Jesus. He is, he is the root of David. He is the descendant of David. This has always been God's plan. He's worthy because of where he comes from, because of who he is. So we see that weep no more. He, he is the lion who has overcome. And look at verse 6 here. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the world. You see the contrast between verse 5 and verse 6? Did you catch it? The elder says, weep no more for the lion has overcome. And John turns to look to see a lion and he can't find a lion anywhere. He says, weave no more. The lion is overcome. John looks at the throne, looks for the lion. There's no lion. What does he see? It's a lamb. So he's looking for a lion and he sees a lamb. And it's not just any lamb, it's a slain lamb. It's a slain lamb, a lamb who's given his life. And it says, who has seven horns, seven eyes, or the seven spirits of God. So again, seven, 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 that's the, that's the number of completion. So he is the slain lamb who is not lying down. He's standing up as if he had been slain. He's standing. He has completed what God has given him to do. All the fullness of the will of God, he has completed. This is the the savior of the world. I got a picture in case you wanted to see what this lamb might have looked like. If you're looking for a new tattoo, maybe, or just something to haunt your dreams, you know, there you go. Uh, You know, John wrote scripture, so I guess he knows what he's doing. I'm just some dude, but that's a little creepy, uh, if you ask me. Uh, But this, this is the this is the lamb. So he, he, he goes to see, where's the lion? And instead he sees a lamb. So Jesus is both lion and lamb. He's both powerful and he's sacrificial. He's both mighty and meek, human and divine. You might think about some attributes of a lion. He's conqueror, victorer, rescuer. He's authoritative, ruler, king, unrivaled. He has dominion, authority, command, and control. That's, that's who he is. He's the lion. He's the king. But yet he's also lamb. He's slain, humble, human, born of lowly family position, born of a lowly tribe in Israel, born in a lowly fashion in a manger in Bethlehem. 
grew up in a carpenter's house and identified with the outcast of Jewish society. He is lion and lamb. And this, this idea of the slain lamb is so compelling. This is what makes Jesus worthy because he's the slain lamb. The fact that he's a slain lamb demonstrates what kind of savior he is. He, he's worthy to bring justice into the world because he suffered injustice. Like Jesus didn't just come to bring justice to the world. He came to right all the wrong in the world, all the injustice in the world. Jesus took the full brunt of human injustice so that he could bring justice to the world. He took on wrong so that he could make things right. You think it's an accident that Jesus came when he did? I don't think it's an accident. I mean, think about it. Jesus was born in the first century when to, to, to an occupied Jewish nation by the Roman, Roman authorities. And, and Jesus was was tried by the Jewish authorities in the cover of night and sentenced to crucifixion, which I don't know that there's been a more cruel empire uh, on the earth than the Roman Empire. There's been a lot of cruel empires. But they're definitely one of the cruelest who, who killed Jesus by crucifixion, which wasn't really an execution as much as it was torture. It took some people days to die after being nailed to a cross. No, see, I I don't think it's any accident that Jesus came when he did. In his crucifixion, he was dying to save sinners, absolutely. But I think what Jesus was doing was putting the corruption of all governments, of all human history on full display and taking the injustice of the world on himself so that he could then bring justice to the world. (laughs) He, He took on injustice and suffered from a place of injustice so that he could bring justice to the world. See, Jesus put himself on the hook for human suffering so that in the end, he could destroy human suffering without destroying us with it. <laughs> that's, that's what the slain lamb does. He, he put himself on the hook for all the corruption and injustice in the world and all human suffering. He put himself on the hook for that so that he could destroy suffering and injustice in the end without destroying us. And that's what it means. If you, know, if you know the slain lamb, if you've come to be a follower of the lamb, that's what you get. You get, you get what he purchased for us. Jesus is a completely different kind of king. We just sang about that, didn't we? There's, there's no other king. I love how Wesley described Jesus as a servant washing feet. He, he's a different kind of king, isn't he? And that's what we want. We want the slain lamb who, who, who's the king, who's different from all the other leaders in the world. Think about every power, every government, every kingdom that's ever been. How do they get what they want? They get it through force. And yet, how is the lamb coming into his authority? By sacrifice. He, he's a different kind of king. Every government uh, asserts themselves through coercion, Jesus asserts himself through service. Governments take life. Jesus lays down his life. He's a completely different kind of king. Uh, In 2008, with the release of the the movie Iron Man, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe was kind of launched and 11 years later culminated into 32 different movies that have grossed over $30 billion dollars billion dollars uh, in that time frame. 
I think it's safe to say our culture likes superheroes. We do like superheroes. And that's just Marvel, not to mention DC and all the other TV shows, comics, books uh, that have been produced uh, all this time. But I started to notice there's one common theme about all of our heroes. And I think it's that all of them get what they want through force. All of our heroes get what they want. They save the day through violence. You know, we, we meet the enemy blow for blow. We fight fire with fire. And it's all through violence. If you, if you look at it, I, I may be missing one here and there, but all, all of our superheroes, they get what they want through, through violence, but not with Jesus. Have you noticed that? Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't use force. He uses love. The lamb or the lion that is overcome has overcome as a slain lamb. He's overcome not by taking lives, but by giving his life. He's defeated his enemies. Listen, not by vanquishing them, but by dying for them. At the heart of Christianity, you know what is at the heart of Christianity? At the heart of Christianity is a man dying for his enemies. That's who the slain lamb is. You want to know what, the, what our king is like? That's what it's like. He's dying for his enemies, by the way, of which we once, we once were. And because of it, listen, no other hero in human history is worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and to look into it. Only the slain lamb. He's the only one worthy to execute justice in the world. So what started as really bad news and John is weeping has now turned into really good news. It's good news because one has been found worthy. The lamb is worthy. And that's the, that's the one we want. We want the slain lamb. Because he is the one who can execute justice in the world unlike any other government. So this morning, I might encourage you with this. With the same encouragement that the elder gave John. What is it that you're grieving today? that feels like it'll never stop grieving. Can I point you toward a slain lamb and say with the elder, weep no more? What is it that's painful to you today that I might be able to point you to the lamb and with the elder say, weep, weep no more? What is the struggle today that I might be able to point you toward the lamb who was slain and with the elder say, weep, weep no more? There's good news. One has been found worthy. It's the lamb. This brings about the, something I think we need to realize. We're kind of early on in the book of Revelation. Uh, later on, we're going to find out a lot more about the, the, the other kingdom that's, that's in the world, the kingdom of the dragon, the kingdom of Babylon. Right now, we're just talking about the lamb and his kingdom, but there's another kingdom that's coming. And really, it shows us that there's two ways to be in the world. There's either team lamb or team dragon. There's either the kingdom of the lamb or the kingdom of the dragon. And I think for us, we need to wrestle with this idea now to say, hey, which way are we going to live? Which way are we going to live? And I think because of how we see the lamb laying down his life and other kingdoms taking life, we have to ask ourselves, which one do we most align with in our lives? Are we more like the lamb or are we more like the dragon? Are we more like the kingdom of the lamb or more like the kingdom of Babylon? It's important. Again, I don't know that there's any time in um, 
more important than now for this kind of message, for a group of people to embrace the life of the slain lamb. You know, it's, it's one thing to raise our hands in worship of the slain lamb. It's another thing for us to go out into the world and live like the slain lamb. It's a whole other thing. But I want to encourage you this morning to think about where would it be that God would call you to live out the ethic of the slain lamb, to love like Jesus loved? On August 28th, uh, we just celebrated 60 years of the march on Washington, D.C., where Martin Luther King Jr. gave the famous I Have a Dream speech. And while I was thinking about this, this ethic of the slain lamb, I started thinking about what Martin Luther King Jr. said when he said, hate can't drive out hate, only love can do that. Hate can't drive out hate, only love can do that. What is that? That's the ethic of the slain lamb, isn't it? That's the love of the lamb. That's the love of Jesus. So if, if Jesus as the slain lamb has been the force to change human history and alter the course of our world, what could God do with us if we went out into our individual worlds and lived the ethic of the slain lamb? What, what might your workplace look like if you took the love of Jesus into that place? What might your family look like if you took the ethic of the slain lamb to your family? What, might, what kind of employer might you be? What kind of boss might you be if you took the ethic of the slain lamb into that place? What might your school look like if you took this kind of approach to your school? I, I don't know. I think our world needs more than any other time, not more governments who assert themselves by force, but we need the ethic of the slain lamb in our world like nothing else. And that's what's really going to change it. I think if we want to change our world, it's going to happen by embracing the ethic of the slain lamb. Revelation 5 shows us that Jesus is worthy because of who he is. But it also shows us that Jesus is worthy because of what he has done. Look at Revelation 5 in verses 8 through 10. It says, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests. You've made them a kingdom of priests. It's pretty staggering the picture you get here from John. John says there's myriads of myriads of people in verse 11, and there's thousands of thousands of people. So as John gets this vision of what it's like in the kingdom of God, he sees myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This, the language is a little bit limited here because in the Greek, uh, the biggest number was 10,000 at this time. They didn't go past 10,000. They just... But, but if you can get the, the scope of it, there's groups of thousands of thousands, myriads of myriads. I, I don't think it's... I think it's safe to say millions of people around the throne, around the Lamb, worshiping Him, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. You're worthy to execute the justice of God in the world. Only you are worthy, Jesus. 
millions and millions of people. The imagery helps us see the scope of this as well. The four living creatures represent humanity and the 24 elders represent the people of God, including the church. John, in his language, I think even helps us see how big this is. He says every tribe and nation and language and people. He's trying to get at everybody here. Tribes, languages, nations. And then the, I love the term people because the term people is literally crowd. I think John's saying, and if I just happen to leave out somebody that I can't really see because there's so many people, there's crowds too. It's just crowds of people. What started with one man's family in Abraham and went to a nation has now culminated in a kingdom around the throne, worshiping the lamb, gathered around the slain lamb. This is the picture we get of the kingdom of God. And so what do you do with this picture? Well, I think there's a couple things. I think it'd be great for us to join them in worship of the lamb because he's the only one who's worthy. But, but not just worship as in raising our hands and singing our songs. We should do that. I'm not taking that lightly. But it's more about an allegiance to, to the lamb himself. When we worship, we're saying, yeah, you know what? I'm team lamb. I want to be a part of this kingdom. I want to give my allegiance to the king of this kingdom. And then I want to live my life in a way that reflects the ethic of the slain lamb. I think that's the kind of worship that we should give. We should join in. They're already myriads worshiping the lamb, we should join in. But not only that, we need, we need a shift. I think for some of us, if, there's, if this is really how big, really how big and diverse that this kingdom is, my question for us is, do we have the same vision for this kind of kingdom? <laughs> is your vision, does your vision of the kingdom of God match this kind of vision? And I think for maybe some of us, if we're honest, it doesn't always line up 100%. There are people included around the throne of the slain lamb that maybe we would say, eh, I don't know if, if I want those people or that language or that crowd or that nation. And I think this passage calls us to a shift to say, man, this is going to be way more diverse, way more people from every tribe, nation, tongue. Is that your vision of the kingdom? And if not, we, we need to make a shift to more of a kingdom understanding of where, where this thing is going. I love how Bob Goff put it. He said that God has called us to be ushers in the kingdom of God, not bouncers. You know, bouncers keep out and they throw out. Ushers just bring people to. And I think we're not called to say, oh, you get in, you don't get in, you got to be out, you got to be out. No, we just bring people to Jesus. I think this picture of the kingdom um, creates in us this need to be ushers, to bring people to the slain lamb, be a part of his kingdom. As we think about this, this picture of the kingdom of God um, and all these people worshiping him, I want to take a minute to uh, tell you about a new ministry that God has birthed uh, in our church. I want to bring out Christian Permuda. Uh, would you welcome Kristen with me this morning? Kristen is our uh, LifePoint Kids Director at our Plain City campus. She's also the director of Amago Day, which is what we're here to talk about. So, 
Kristen, welcome. Glad you're here. Thank you. Uh, talk a little bit about what does Imago Day mean and uh, what, what is the significance of the ministry? Yeah, so Imago Day simply means creating God's image. It means that every single person has value and should be a part of the church and be able to participate in life groups and church services and worship. And for us, it means that there are people within our church that have seen and unseen disabilities or special needs, and we have the opportunity to welcome them in. And um, they're looking for a place. There might be those that are looking for a place to worship and that can make accommodations for them and give them a place where they can draw life from God. Yeah, that's great. Now, this seems like something that maybe LifePoint's been doing for a while. So talk a little bit about how Imago Day is kind of different. Yeah, so for many years, um, we've been serving kids in this capacity, in a similar capacity through um, what we called You Are Special. And we're since shifting that language to Imago Day, and we're extending it to serve those affected by disabilities of all ages and their families. You know, it was a couple years ago that here at the Lewis Center campus, we had a family come who shared that they hadn't been to church in 12 years because their son's needs were so significant. They couldn't, they couldn't leave him anywhere, and they couldn't come into a church service. And we believe there's more families out there that are in that similar situation. And so we now have the opportunity in God's timing to, um, to open our doors and to make, um, give them a place where they don't feel like they walk alone anymore. Yeah, that's great. So uh, jumping into a ministry like that might feel intimidating or bring out some fears in, in folks. How would you uh, encourage people with some of those fears? Yeah, so about this time, a year ago or so, I was able to go down to Arkansas at a church you actually had recommended that has a well-established disability and special needs ministry. And uh, I got to see what they were doing in kids, but I was really interested in seeing students and adults with disabilities and how they were serving them that morning on Sundays. So um, you know what I saw? I saw ordinary people like you and me just engaging with um, those that were visually impaired or nonverbal. One young man was bouncing on an exercise ball the entire hour, um, but the leaders were just simply engaging them and loving on them. Um, it was very clearly like an outpouring of their love for God onto these um, these the people they were leading and this the students and adults and. It was the most beautiful thing. I've, I'll never forget it. And I remember sitting there observing with tears in my eyes, thinking, I am literally seeing Jesus interact with these people right mm. now. Like, it was that meaningful and impactful. So, mm. yes, is it overwhelming and intimidating? Absolutely. I felt like that over the past year many times. But God has made it so clear that all we have to do is have our yes on the table with a willing heart. He'll He'll do the rest. We just have to love God and love his people. Like, life is messy for all of us, right? Um, but there's a weight that these families carry that's unique. And we have the opportunity now um, to make them feel seen and known and welcome in our church. And um, for those that often are overlooked, that's, that's a huge opportunity for our church. And so um, we're going to step into that through Mago Day. Yeah. So if a family is maybe affected by a disability or, or special needs, um, how are they going to be served in Imago Day? 
Yeah, so if you are a person affected by disability or special needs or a family member, um, I want to hear from you. I want to know you and I want to talk to you, pray with you. Um, so just go into the notes section of the app. Um, you'll see Imago Day individual worship plan. Fill that out. Take some time. It'll come to me and um, I will contact you through email and we'll set up a time to meet in person and just talk through all of the ways that uh, more in detail of how LifePoint Church can come alongside and serve your family well through the context of Imago Day. Okay, so in the message notes for today's message, they can go in and find the yep. links there. Okay. So if someone's, say, interested in, in serving in this way um, and getting involved in Imago Day to, to serve these families, what, what would you say to them? How do they get involved? Yeah, you don't have to have any experience. It's not for certain people, um, right? It's for any of us. And I would say that um, uh, you can just go on the notes section also of the app. There's a Mago Day leader application. You can fill that out um, or come find me after service. I'd love to answer any questions you might have. Um, there's a variety of ways since we're starting developing the ministry. There's a variety of ways you can get step into this life team. Um, what I'll say, though, is it's, I'll just be honest, it's not an easy serving role. It can be complicated. But I will tell you, the kingdom investment to serve with these individuals is so incredibly worth it. Mm. Like, it's, it's incredible um, to see um, just their image of God reflected. And so, yes, you will be a blessing to them. But what I'll say is they will be a blessing to you. Like, you will, um, they have so much to offer us as a church. And so there's, um, there's just a lot of kingdom investment we can, we can take part in. All right. So people want to get connected to you, they can do that through the notes. But also, maybe you head out to Guest Central in the lobby. She'll be out there. I can do that. <laughs> Lo love to connect with you today if you have any interest. All right. Well, well thank you, Kristen, with me, everybody. Thank you, Kristen. So an exciting initiative to kind of, I think, apply today's message to say if this, if this vision around the throne of the slain lamb includes people's tribes, tongues, nations, how do we get involved in that? Imago Day is one of those ways that I think we can do that. Um, this morning, if, you, if you're here and, and you're wondering, all right, what do we, we kind of do with a message uh, like this? Um, first of all, I'd say if, if you don't know and have never worshipped the slain lamb in a, in a way that means that you're giving your life uh, to him. We want to invite you into that kind of relationship today. So I think that's where, where we would start, right? Do you, do you know this kind of relationship? And then as we talked about earlier, I think not only does God call us to receive the benefits of the salvation that God has purchased from us, but he's then mobilizing us, sending us into the world to take the love that we've received from the lamb and then extend that to others. And so how might God want to use you? How might God want to kind of flip the power dynamics of your world on its head like he did with Jesus where we're not taking by force and we're not coercing others, but we're serving and sacrificing and uh, we're taking on wrongs without paying back. What might that look like uh, in your world? Uh, maybe this morning there's a shift that God wants to make in your heart to, to kind of move you from a bouncer mentality to an usher mentality. I don't know what God's doing in your heart and in your life, but we want to give you a chance to respond. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in this place to worship the Lamb who is the only one worthy of worship, the only one worthy to execute God's justice in the world, the only one worthy to bring about the new heavens and new earth, to bring about the restoration of all things. He is, he is worthy. And God, I pray that this morning we would bow in worship to the King who is both lion and lamb. And God, in our worship, it would be transformative to our lives and then lead us out to transform our individual worlds. What an opportunity we have in this time, in this place, to display the love of the lamb to our world. God, I thank you for the opportunity to worship together. And I pray as we worship to close out today's service that you would stir our hearts toward the lamb, we pray in his name.